0: You're listening to the Unstoppable Yes You podcast, Gifted with Potential series. I'm your host, Curlis Phillip. In this series, we share personal stories of struggles and triumph as a source of inspiration for teens and young adults. Today, we're speaking with Andre Walton of St. James, Barbados. Andre's parents moved from Barbados to New York to chase the American dream, living in with his grandparents for a brief time. When he reunited with his parents, they felt Andre's best chance at success in the U.S. would be to assimilate quickly. This meant eliminating any trace of his Caribbean identity. As you can imagine, forcing a child out of a lifestyle he so greatly loved caused many disciplinary problems. In this episode, Andre shares his story of losing who he is and finding his way back. Andre, welcome.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate
0: it. Tell me about your early childhood years in Barbados.
1: So, yeah, my early childhood years in Barbados, they were great. Uh, they were filled with family, friends, and just an environment that was was natural to me. Uh, so I lived with my grandparents from, I think, the time I was two to I was almost nine. And it was great. So it was my grandparents, was my, their children, which were my uncles and my aunts. And then a couple of their children, which were my cousins. So we had a pretty full household, people who were going through all different phases of life, but was a, was a strong family unit.
0: And that's typical with the Caribbean community where we're surrounded by cousins and uncles and aunts. Always good to have that level of closeness and family unit. So at some point you reunited with your parents and moved to New York. And how was that adjustment for you?
1: Uh, It was, it was difficult. So when they came and got me, you know, I don't, you know, as far as I can remember at this point in time, I didn't know who they were. So it was almost a reintroduction to them because I don't remember speaking speaking to them on the phone a bunch or, or any of that stuff. So it was, it was a reintroduction to my parents when they came and got me. So it was that there. They already had two kids back in New York, two brothers. So the act of coming to get me almost, it felt pretty intrusive when I was a little kid. So, it was, and it wasn't much time between they came and got me that I was on a plane to America. And then I got here and I got here, I believe it was in September. So it was temperatures I've never felt before, right? So you, not only the trauma of leaving, you know, all that I knew, but it was coming to some place where I'm hopping off a plane, it's temperatures I've never felt before in my life. It was a transfer here, pretty daunting as a nine-year-old kid that's never been out of the Caribbean before.
0: I know you are with parents that you are at the point of just getting to know at age nine. So what was that like for you, you know, in that household?
1: It was difficult and different. And it was different because, you know, I was getting used to a new country, a new environment, getting used to new parenting ways, getting used to siblings, right? So it was, A lot of getting used to. I've always, in my immediate family, I've always felt kind of like the odd one because my parents are from Barbados, born and raised. You know, they came to the States in their early twenties, but they assimilated pretty quick to the U.S. and that became who they were, especially my father, who he was. He was more of the dominant one in the household. So when I came and he had, he assimilated, plus he had two American born kids you know, having me come in as a and full accent, looking to eat flying fishing cuckoo, and there's none of that in the house, but we we eating spaghetti and meatballs. I'm like, I I don't, you know, it was difficult for me. It's probably difficult for them because they were, they got used to a lifestyle that was different to what they came from. But I, I rejected it for a long time.
0: So in terms of the cooking, did you, Feel like they cook American food as part of that assimilation, or because it was probably easier to get that type of food. I mean, the grocery stores.
1: Probably a little bit of both, right? Because, eat, eat, like, like we our our national dish is flying fish and cuckoo, right? You can get flying fish flown from Barbados all the time. People do it all the time, and they they, they probably did all the time. And then cornmeal, <laughs> right? So, not you know. Corn. Outside of the fish, the cornmeal and such are the pretty basic ingredients, but it's probably because it was difficult to get at that time. All right, this we're talking about 83, probably the assimilation piece as well. Now, I didn't appreciate it when I was younger. I appreciate now that I'm older because I had pretty diverse eating experience when I was younger, uh, which is pretty cool as an adult to draw from, especially the fact that I like to cook and do those type of things. But as a youngster and being feel like I'm feeling like I'm being forced into a situation that I didn't sign up for. You know, you fought hard against it. You, 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 essentially, as an adult, you realize you're fighting hard to keep your identity. You didn't know that when you were younger. You just knew things didn't feel right. But you were fighting to keep your identity, you know.
0: In terms of the external environment, what was that like for you?
1: It was difficult as well, right? Because I, <laughs> our education system, race is actually pretty competitive. And coming to the States and going into elementary school and kind of testing out of the grade I'm supposed to be in, and getting into some of the coursework for the age that I was, and for the coursework that they were doing, it just felt like Man, this is easy. <laughs> All right, so. Coursework and schoolwork wise, it was easier. Making friends was a little more difficult. You know, I've always been a aggressive kid. I've always never backed down and I've always had a pretty strong personality. So I met teasing and I met, you know, those type of behaviors from other kids with aggression. It was like I sat back and became meek and took it. I just, you know, what I couldn't deal with, we got into some physical altercations about.
0: What were some of the things that they teased you about?
1: Well, my accent, of course, the fact that, you know, I spoke different, I acted different, I expected different. It it was, you know, you're a new kid in school, you're completely different than what they're used to. You won't back down from them. And that was one of the more major things is the fact that I wouldn't back down from them. I led to some physical altercations.
0: Did that aggression and behavior that you felt at an early age transitioning to New York, did that follow you through high school?
1: Oh yeah, it did because I went to, it followed me through, it was elementary school, then junior high. And junior high was better because you you knew kids from elementary school, right? But then in junior high, you had different elementary schools converging into your junior high. So you had to kind of deal with that transition there. And then from high school, everyone then transitioned to high school. So it was easier because now I knew a bunch of people.
0: At some point you moved to Florida and was that in high school?
1: Yeah. Um, so I moved to Florida my junior year. At the end of my sophomore year of high school in New York, I moved to I moved to Florida. And here's a funny thing in general. Like when I look back, all my friends in New York and all my friends in Florida were Caribbean. They you just it, we just naturally gravitated to each other.
0: Do you feel that your attitude and behavior sort of improved in Florida when you left New York or was it pretty much the same?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much the same because then you, it's no longer a U.S., uh, Caribbean, U.S. assimilation. Now it's, you're going from the Northeast to the Southeast. <laughs> that, that's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> so so now my, my assimilation, my adjustment was to how they do things in the South, the music, right? And at that point in time now, I didn't listen to soca anymore. You just kind of lost it because it wasn't being played in my house wasn't being played in my neighborhoods. I didn't. We didn't have uh, YouTube and uh, Spotify and all these other things or SoundCloud or whatever the case may be, right? So if it wasn't being brought to you back then and it wasn't in your current environment, you didn't have access to it. What was in my environment was reggae and, and rap. So that's what I listened to. But then you came down to South and they listened to booty music and they called you JIT. And I'm like, what? Who? What are you people? Right. So so the a, a different type of adjustment. And of course you adjusted, but it took a little bit. And the funny thing is I came from New York to Orlando, Florida for six months. And then while we I guess things were being worked out in South Florida and we moved to South Florida. And South Florida has a lot of Caribbeans. And the friends that I have, the friends that I met literally on my first couple of days of school are the same friends I have to this day that I see every week.
0: What did you want to do with your life after high school?
1: Well, you know, something pretty traumatic happened to me in high school because I started playing football when it came to the country, American football. In Barbados, I played football, Caribbean football, uh, soccer, and uh, cricket. And while they had that in the States and New York, you know, my access wasn't there because my parents weren't into sports or supporting sports and things of that sort. So, but I started playing football and, you know, I was, getting notes from schools and getting letters and scholarship offers. So I was pretty focused on going to school to play football. I had no clue what I was going to do. I just know that I just knew that I wanted to get out of where I was. Football was my way out. And that was my path, trekking towards it. And my senior year, spring football senior year, I blew my knee out, my left knee. I stayed out of school for about six months while I was rehabbing and such, but it's also you went through what I know now as an adult. It's probably a little depression because kind of threw my path off and I didn't know what was going to be next. But, you know, going through high school, I never really had a thought of what I would be doing. I just knew that my next phase was school and I was going to get to college through football, but no no real focus on what I was going to do in college in terms of a a career.
0: Your injury really put a damper on that football scholarship aspiration. And so what was your plan B?
1: Uh, Plan B was just to work. So after high school, I worked at a car wash for a number of years. It was actually, listen, back then it was pretty good money. It was $500 of cash a week under the table. (laughs) I hope the government's not listening because I'm not paying taxes on that. Um, (laughs) And it was pretty good money back then, right? Still, I left home at 17. I lived apartments in different places, but it paid for everything. It it, it was fine. My friends, you know, we talked about moving to Orlando. A couple of them, three of them moved to Orlando in January. I think it was 95. And then myself and another couple uh, moved up in April of 95. So When we moved up, we talked about going to college and some were going to college at that point in time, community colleges and such. But when we all came up, we all enrolled into Valencia. So the the entire friend group kind of moved our operation from high school to Valencia College in Orlando. So we started going to school and working at the same time.
0: At some point, you left community college and decided to work full time. And what was the reason for that?
1: Well, yeah. So I was in school and I didn't, you know, just going through your kind of general courses, didn't really know what I was going to do. I am um, deciding, you know, I was working in warehouses and different things of that sort while I was going to school, working in warehouses. They also did like uh, work for a moving company for a number of years. These are things that y- you look back on and it's actually they're great experiences because I use, <laughs> I use some of these tools, these, you know, these days as I'm doing different things, such as moving from house to house. But, you know, I took a course in school, I met a lady who was taking an EMT course in school and we were talking about it. So I wanted to kind of pick a career that I can get a certificate in really quick and kind of start a career, at least while I'm in school. So I'm tracking towards something while I'm in school. So I did the EMT course. And then when I went, uh, before I took my national test, we were looking at different, uh, looking in the paper for different jobs and and EMT was being paid $7 an hour at that point in time. And then I saw a telemarketing job for 8 bucks an hour. I didn't know what telemarketing was, so I did a little research and found out that I'm sitting in an air-conditioned space with headphones on my head, talking to people trying to sell them stuff. So I'm like, well, I'm not a salesperson, but for 8 bucks an hour, I'll give it a shot. So I did that. So we were doing that while we were going to school, and eventually that took over. Because I went from a sales rep on the phone to a supervisor and then it kinda you know, kinda take off from there.
0: What was that point in your life would you say that took you on that leadership path?
1: I guess it's just realizing that I was a leader, you know, in in sports I was a leader. In my friend group I was a leader to a certain degree. You know, at that point in time we had a couple of folks who had the head on a lot straighter than myself, right? They didn't have the (laughs) aggressive nature I did, so you know they naturally led the group but you know i just started realizing that i wanted to be at the forefront of things happening not thing not not receiving i wanted to be setting strategy i wanted to be managing people i wanted to be you know i wanted to be delivering results holistically um and being part of the decision making process and not being not on the not 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 being on the receiving end of things you know when the opportunity came up to be a leader in, at the job I was at, my team leader, and I applied for it initially. And, you know, myself and a few other of, the, of my friends that started at the same time, they were getting the jobs ahead of me, even though my performance was either on par or better. My, my, you know, So they were getting the job ahead of me. And I applied a couple of times and I realized like I was, for some reason, they're not promoting me. So, and I had locks at this time, by the way, I talked to my Girlfriend at the time, wife currently, well, not currently, it's my wife. <laughs> but so I talked to her, I'm like, Dude, I think I'm going to cut my locks. And I cut my locks and literally there was no position open. And they tapped me on the shoulder to lead a group a couple weeks after that. I started understanding what it was going to take to survive in the corporate world and how it was so different than my personal environment.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you felt this this urgency to... Assimilate, and you got that pressure from your parents because you know they felt that was probably one of the only ways to be successful in the US. And so, as you started to rise through the ranks in your career, did you feel that you had to hide your Bayesian identity or just hide any part of yourself, or did you feel that you could bring your entire self to your job?
1: I answer that question a couple different parts. So, the first part is I I reconnected with my my heritage, my culture, when I came to Florida, because South Florida has so many Caribbean folks. And so I had access to so many things. You used to go to the local music store or the local uh, restaurant, Jamaican restaurant, um, reggae, right? You, you, or dance hall. You had dance hall, you had culture, and then you had calypso, you had soca. So you started kind of getting back into the things that you knew. So by the time I was in the workforce, like I was, you know, full and you know, claiming you know the whole thing you know flag wearing to this day i was always fine probably i would say so from probably early teens to early 20s was a spot early teens to mid-teens or late teens when you know i i kind of lost myself a bit when it came to my my heritage gaining back pretty strong in my late teens and from that point on even more so my wife is from the u.s first now born in british first now and heavy soca heavy calypso you know when I got with her, that also helped kind of fortify that piece again. So, in terms of my Caribbean heritage, that was always out front. Like when people ask me where I'm from, you know, that's that's the first that's that's where I lead, that's what I leave with to this day. But going through the ranks uh, as a black person, absolutely, you had to you had to hide who you were in order to adjust, and you had to hide who you were in order to get to the places that you, you wanted to get to. There's no way. I could have been my entire self at work, spoke the way I normally spoke in my my personal environment or brought my diversity of thought to the table 100% and got where I got to. So like from lower management to middle management, that space in between, you really have to watch your P's and Q's until until you build a reputation in the industry, until you build a reputation. If you're staying with that company, build a reputation with that company. But more importantly, build a reputation in the industry as a person who's effective. Because once that happens, then you can then kind of unveil who you are and be that person. Because what I've learned is at the top, they're all themselves, right? No one, no one is hiding. Everyone is themselves. Because you've built a reputation of performance. You've built a reputation of leadership. You've built a reputation of results. So people trust who you are at that point in time. So I would say for the last 10 years, I've been myself. But it was a journey to get there and understand how to do that.
0: I know you're SVP. Give me an example of how you were able to bring the lens of diversity to your peers to effect change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So senior vice president of national practice leader for my firm and in the division that I run. I am the executive sponsor of our Black Professional Network, which is a business resource group, essentially a diversity group within Aon North America. I am the, I participate on the East Region Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board. I am on the Global Inclusive Leadership Committee, which is 20 leaders around the world who are are responsible for setting strategy and kind of governing our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at Aon. Uh, and then, then I'm also the executive sponsor of our apprentice program, which is a program that we created. We took our our office in London, and started it. We brought it to Chicago. Now we're in the process of expanding it, and it really is a sourcing solution that has a diverse lean because we went through jobs at Aon and said, "What job does not require a bachelor's degree, master's degree, or doctorate?" Right? What what can what job do we think? We can bring in folks who are pursuing their associates because you know, there's a lot of smart people who just don't want to go through four years of school. And, and you know, 70 percent of community colleges and junior colleges, 70 percent are black and Latinos. So it's a sourcing strategy that gets right into the heart of diversity, equity, and inclusion for people. And it doesn't matter their age. Right. People who are going for their associates. So we hire them as full time colleagues. Uh, they get paid a full time, 40 hour salary, 28 of their hours are Aon hours, and then eight to 12 are their full-time in school. So it's a program that we have, we have created. It's a program that we talk to other companies about because there's a lot of kids, a lot of people in general are in community colleges. And we, we want to make sure we have the opportunity to expand their ability to get into professional organizations While they're going through that. And by the way, we pay for, they become full-time colleagues, they get benefits and everything. And then we also pay for their two-year degree. So that's how I'm involved in making sure that my organization is doing things that are equitable for diverse colleagues. And diversity to me has a number of different leans to it, right? So we're talking about diversity in terms of gender, we're talking about diversity in terms of race, we're talking about diversity in terms of physical limitations. We're talking about diversity in terms of LGBTQ. We're talking about diversity in terms of veteran support. And then we're also talking about uh, socioeconomical diversity, right? So we're not just hitting diversity from your cookie cutter gender, which is important. All of it's important, but we need to make sure we're hitting all those different pieces because we're a, we're a 50,000 employee company that in 120 countries, diversity means different things in different countries. That's how I participate pretty strong participation globally pretty strong participation locally in north america
0: well i have to say kudos to you and your company and i you know really hope that a lot more companies especially you know the F- fortune 500 companies that have the resource and the bandwidth to be able to do so can do more as you reflect on your your life experiences and it could be teenager as a young adult or grown man what advice would you give your younger self
1: Oh, (laughs) Um, a couple of things. One, get out of my own way. I think my aggressive way of being kind of stifled my growth for a while and stifled my growth professionally. It stifled my growth personally and stifled my growth even even as a husband, right? Because that aggression was kind of universal. So I'll give an example. At work, it was when I first became a leader, it was my way or the highway. When I became a husband, uh, I was super aggressive towards other men looking at my wife, right? And it wasn't even a thing where I was insecure. It was just who I was. And then, you know, personally, you know, when I was younger, my friends would be would go out and anyone looked at me wrong or said something wrong. It wasn't a conversation with a fight. So... I think it stunted my growth a bit when it came to my personal interaction with friends because they all had to be worried that when we go out we'll get into a fight or at work it was he doesn't take feedback well. You know, I had high turnover for a while when it came to my employees. And then as a husband, you know, do you trust me or not? Conversations will happen a lot because of the way I acted. But the one thing I've always been is reflective and try to fix myself and work on myself. Don't know where it came from, but it's always been a trait of mine. And when I saw it affecting everything in my, you know, in my life, I had to make an adjustment. So, you know, no longer am I, no, it's, it's in me now, right? So I'm not going me say I'm cured, right? But I understand now how the world works and how I need to approach things differently to be effective. So as a friend, you know, that aggression is no longer there. I'm still a very protective person when it comes to my friends and my wife and my family, but I'm not protective in that aggressive way. When it comes to an employee, I'm not, I'm now a servant leader, so I take feedback. People are involved in decisions. Now there are times, there are situations, and I, I you know, I attribute that to situational leadership, where you have to make decisions because you are the boss. So those still occur, but the majority of the strategy that we we deploy at work, delivery that strategy, it's all born from my team. Uh, I endorse it, I support it, and I remove roadblocks where roadblocks need to be removed, but. It's not a strategy that I sit in a room and I come up with, and I say, "Here, go do." It's something that we all put together and come up with. And as a husband, you know, I know, you know, I completely trust my wife. Always have, but you know, I no longer am aggressive towards do. Like I can literally be standing next to her right now. Someone comes up and has a whole conversation with her, and I don't even move because you know, you just evolve. You learn to evolve as a person. If you're reflective and understand how things are impacting your relationships, then you you either make the adjustment or you don't. If you don't, you fail. If you do. You open yourself up to having a lot more success. so what I would tell my younger self as a as a older person now is to get out of my own way, kind of be reflective earlier and make not change my decisions when it comes to how my career ended or how my life ended uh, but maybe accelerate it being a lot more reflective as a as a, as a younger person.
0: Thank you for that. So what's next for you in terms of personal or career growth and ambitions?
1: uh well, you know I've always been a money chaser you know, I, I've always been achievement chasing, goal chasing. I always have to have that next thing that I'm doing. Well, I, while I, in my career, I, I you know, I explain what I do. I also have a, um, a hot sauce and marinade company, which is called Blazing Bayesian. You know, right now, my intent is to, to continue to grow that. I'll continue to progress in my career. I'm looking for opportunities to be an expat globally right now. My three daughters one lives in the US Virgin Islands and the other two are in school. One goes to Missouri Southern and one goes to Valencia here locally. So essentially I'm an empty nester and can literally my wife and I can pretty much do what we want to do in terms of career and where we live. So looking for an opportunity to to go outside the country and work for my current company in a different capacity. I'm looking to grow my hot sauce business and looking to be continue to be a successful husband and father. So that's always my focus and a good friend.
0: I do wish you all the best. Thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners, Andre. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, to our audience, thanks for listening. To receive new episodes of this series directly in your inbox, subscribe to the mailing list by visiting our website at www.unstoppableyesu.com. Don't forget to join us. On social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram.